Welcome to International Outlook, a regular podcast series from the New Zealand Initiative on International Affairs. I'm joined by our Executive Director, Dr. Oliver Hartwich. Hi, Oliver. Hi, Ben. Oliver, two weeks ago we sat here in this very podcast room and spoke about the conflict between Russia and Ukraine and the threat of looming invasion. Now two weeks later and we're still we're still waiting for this invasion. What's going on? Well, two weeks ago, I predicted that there is a relatively low likelihood of a military conflict around Ukraine because I argued it wouldn't pay for Vladimir Putin because he's already achieved most of his goals. A few days ago, of course, the American president, Joe Biden, contradicted that assessment (laughs) and said, no, Russia is going to invade on Wednesday. Well, We're recording this on Wednesday, New Zealand time. So far, I've just checked the news, nothing has happened. And I expect to be proven right, and I think Joe Biden is wrong. Because um, there is no conflict, and I think there still is a high likelihood that there won't be a conflict. I'm not saying it is completely impossible, but I think it doesn't look like it. And as if to rub it in, Vladimir Putin announced that he was withdrawing some troops, of course, from the Russian-Ukrainian border as if to really um, try to prove that the Americans were lying. They're looking to discredit Joe Biden, really, yes. aren't they? I mean, the Americans say, hey, the Russians are going to invade on Wednesday, and on Tuesday the Russians are withdrawing their troops. It's just to say, actually, you were wrong, and you're a liar, and we can't take you seriously. Exactly. So in the last two weeks, Vladimir Putin has held some quite high-level talks with uh, Emmanuel Macron from France and Olaf Scholz from Germany. Um, there was that famous big table where they had to be quite vastly separated from one another. Is it safe to say that these these talks have been fruitful with Russia's withdrawing from the Ukrainian border? Well, first of all, um, the imagery was interesting. As you mentioned, that table, that was because both Macron and Scholz refused to take a Russian PCR test. So they were afraid that the Kremlin would get hold of the DNA. And who knows what the Kremlin would do with uh, Macron's or Scholz's DNA clone them. (laughs) Um, But the pictures actually we got out of that uh, didn't quite suggest that there was a close personal atmosphere between the leaders, even though previously Putin said of Macron that he was the person he could most do business with in Europe. So anyway, we had these visits now. Crucially, Scholz visited Kiev before he traveled on to Moscow. That was a signal. And I think a, a, a good signal to show that Germans are not talking over Kiev's head with Moscow, but they're actually consulting with Kiev first. Mm. Good one. Um, And then there was a really remarkable press conference after that visit. So there were actually two press conferences. The first one was a joint one, Mm. where Scholz and Putin stood again, separated by about 10 meters, and talked about um, their consultations. And it it was a boxing match, almost, an intellectual one. So one of the journalists asked Scholz basically about the possibility of war and how the conversation went. And Scholz said, "Uh, look, after the Second World War, peace has developed in Europe. It's a very high value and it's our bloody duty, quote unquote, to do everything to preserve it. Putin joined in and said, actually, let me just correct you, Mr. Chancellor, there was war in Europe after the Second World War, and it happened in Yugoslavia, and it was NATO attacking Yugoslavia at the time. So just don't brush this under the carpet. NATO has been 
an aggressor before. To which Scholz then said, actually, Mr. President, that's not entirely correct. Of course, there was a genocide happening in Yugoslavia at the time, if you remember, and that's why NATO had to intervene. To which Putin responded, yeah, okay, maybe it was a genocide, but there's a genocide happening in the Donbass now as if he was trying to look for a casus belly to justify a future aggression against Ukraine. So it was an interesting atmosphere in the press conference. And if that was the mood of the bilateral talks between Scholz and Putin, well, uh, it would have been an interesting conversation. That's quite striking that Putin mentioned the so-called genocide in Ukraine of, of ethnic Russians. It's not the first time he's invoked that imagery before. That is true. Um, but so far, I think Putin has mentioned this story, this casus belli, only in domestic Russian publications. And of course, we all know it's not true. It's a lie. But um, okay, if he wants to have a justification for future military aggression against Ukraine, that's probably where he would find it. I think that's a really good point, though. You can have a military on the borders of a country, but you still need an excuse to go to war. Yes, actually, you need that. And before you even call it a military threat, you also need to have an intent to use that military presence. And so far, I don't see it. And actually, I just read a very interesting interview with Harald Kujat, who was Germany's top military general, mm. and actually a high-ranking general within NATO as well. And he just pointed that out. He said, actually, just because you have a military presence doesn't mean anything. As long as there's no intent to use it, it is not a threat. And I think that is still true, um, because I am not entirely convinced that the Russians really want to use it, because the, the costs would be too high to use the military presence because the Russians probably well remember the Afghanistan war with its many casualties, very unpopular war, of course, in Russia. They would not want to see a repeat of that and Putin probably couldn't afford this politically either. So why would Russia really decide to go into Ukraine? And I'm not just talking about some little strips of Ukraine, but why would they go all the way to Kiev take over Ukraine if that means being involved in a guerrilla war for years to come. Mm. I still don't think that is what Russia would like to do, apart from the fact, of course, that then they would really face heavy sanctions. And again, the last few days made that quite clear. So we had talks not just with Scholz in Moscow, but before that with Scholz in Washington and in the press conferences with Joe Biden, and then later also in the press conference with Putin. It became quite clear that the German position has moved towards automatic sanctions, the kinds of sanctions that I think I mentioned in our last podcast, Scholz and Merkel back then actually promised to Joe Biden would happen in the case of a military conflict. Right, and so one of those main ones would be obviously the cutting off of gas through Nord Stream 2, the great big gas pipeline that comes from Russia and enters Germany. How are these sanctions or proposed sanctions, how have they altered the German political landscape? I think Germany is in a process of rethinking its relationship with Russia, um, especially on the German left and especially within the Social Democratic Party. There was always a bit of a Russia nostalgia almost, thinking back to the times when Russia in the 1990s was transforming towards a liberal democracy, uh, which of course it no longer is and no longer pretends to be. And a nostalgia also for the kind of diplomacy that happened even during the Cold War, where politicians on the left, such as Willy Brandt, actually tried to lead to some sort of engagement with the Soviets. So this very nostalgic and very romantic view of Russia mm. prevailed with, within parts of the Social Democrats for a long time. But I think even there, a new realism is starting to take hold. 
You can see this in a few instances, for example, in the re-election of the German president, Frank-Walter Steinmeier, social democrat, a long-time ally of Gerhard Schröder's and a personal friend of Schröder's. He was re-elected and he used his acceptance speech just a few days ago to send a very clear message to the Kremlin. And he said, actually, President Putin, take the noose of Ukraine's neck. Some strong language. Very strong language, and even more surprising coming from someone as Steinmeier, who is basically by his background a, a bureaucrat and a diplomat, and he was a former foreign secretary, of course. Um, to hear such strong language coming out of this part of the German political spectrum is something new. But it will take some time to convince every social democrat, because I, I can just give you an example of how entrenched this relationship with Russia is mm. in the context of Nord Stream 2. There's the state of Mecklenburg-Vorpommern, which is a northeast German state, Baltic Sea. It's exactly where the pipeline actually arrives from Russia. And the state premier, social democrat Manuela Schwesig, has even accepted money from Russia to run a state foundation on climate change. So 90% of that state foundation is financed directly by Russia. It's not even secretive. That, no, there's, there's nothing secret about it. It's totally out in the open. That's incredible. And it is incredible that a state government would actually try to play foreign politics here and accept money from an autocracy just because it also ha hopes to create some jobs out of this pipeline business. So this is happening within the Social Democratic Party. On the one hand, the Social Democrat president saying, take the noose off Ukraine's neck. And on the other hand, a state premier from the same party accepting state funding from Russia for a pol party political foundation. So it's safe to say that the Social Democrats in Germany have a bit of a decision to make on, on what sort of path they want to go down. Yes, and I, I think um, this decision is now being made for them because of Russia's behavior. Yeah. So as Russia behaves the way it does at the moment, showing its aggressive side, its imperialist side, something that, of course, many people have warned of before, um, not just within Germany, but especially outside of Germany. I mean, look at what the Poles have been telling the Germans for decades now, that the Russians are always dangerous, or the Baltic states that couldn't get soon enough under the umbrella of NATO, of course, because they were afraid. Mm. Well, all of these neighbors have told the Germans, actually, be careful with Russia. They might come back at some stage and they might become aggressive again. And Germans always say, oh, no, it's fine. They just want to do business with us and we just take the gas. Well, as it turns out now, actually, all of these Eastern Europeans were right all along. Mm -hmm. And Germany, I think, is now realizing that. And that's why they're changing their policy towards Russia. Okay, so the, the German president, his role is largely ceremonial, so he can't really dictate how Germany responds to Russian aggression. But do you think his way of viewing things, his um, the way that he presented the conflict, that, his, that will influence Olaf Scholz? I think it will. It was quite telling, actually, in the press conference with Olaf Scholz, um, where he was on his own, not with Putin, but still in Moscow. Mm. He mentioned Steinmeier. He said, and he had respect for the federal president, and he mentioned his name. I mean, that in right. itself was quite a signal, I think, to mention his name after that acceptance speech just a few days later in Moscow. It was yeah. a very strong signal, I thought. Does that mean we can expect Germany to export arms to Ukraine uh, to bolster the, their defences? Well, I think that they should. I'm not sure they will. Um, the problem with that is, of course, there are two arguments in Germany typically brought against that. The first argument is a technical one or a legalistic one, saying, well, we have got a policy in Germany not to export arms to crisis regions. Well, okay, that kind of superficially makes sense, except 
there are exceptions. So even under Germany's policies not to export arms into areas of war or of conflict, there is still the exception that you can do so for self-defense, and especially for self-defense in a, a circumstance prescribed by the UN Charter. So where there is aggression against one country, of course Germany is allowed to deliver weapons that help the country attacked to defend itself. So that shouldn't be a, a proper argument against exports to Ukraine. The other argument that's always leveled is an argument of historical responsibility. So the argument goes that Germans should never again point a gun at a Russian after the Second World War. Well, just a bit of a history lesson for many Germans there. They did exactly that in the Cold War. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, I mean, exactly. for 40 years, West Germans were prepared for a Russian invasion. They were prepared for the potential conflict with the Soviet Union. So, I mean, seriously, after the end of the Cold War then, to pretend that that never happened and we could never possibly face a Russian invasion or aggression, not entirely true. The other thing that they forget is, of course, at the time of um, the uh, Second World War, Germany didn't just face Russia. They faced Ukraine as well as part of the Soviet Union. And actually, if you look at the casualties of the Second World War, for which Germany is, of course, responsible, on a per capita basis, there were more casualties in Ukraine than in Russia. And when you look at um, the soldiers uh, from the Soviet Union liberating the concentration camps in Germany, well, guess what? Many of them were Ukrainian. So just to say we did terrible things in the Second World War, which is why we can never again confront Russia, and that's why we cannot help you, unfortunately, dear Ukraine, that the argument doesn't hold. Um, the historical responsibilities would actually suggest that Germany owes it to Ukraine to help protect it from a potential in invasion or aggression. And apart from that, of course it would make sense to send weapons, defensive weapons to Ukraine, because I talked about this earlier. We have a government or an autocratic leadership in Russia that may seem extremely aggressive mm -hmm. and irresponsible but it is not irrational. They make calculations, how much will a potential invasion cost us? Mm. The more Ukraine is able to defend itself, the um, less likely I think a conflict will be because that's the whole policy of deterrence. Yeah, mutually assured destruction. Isn't Indeed. It? Yeah. And apart from that, I think we owe it to Ukraine anyway, because remember after the Cold War, um, Ukraine said, okay, we, we will not have nuclear weapons. Of course, some of the Soviet Union's nuclear weapons were in Ukraine and they were would have been part of Ukraine had Ukraine not actually said, okay, in which case we'll get out of nuclear completely and leave it to Russia. Mm. And in return for that withdrawal from nuclear armament, there was a security guarantee given to Ukraine. Well, you can't walk away from that. Had Ukraine kept on to its nuclear weapons, of course, there would be no invasion. There couldn't be. So I think we, we owe Ukraine a duty, and the duty is to protect it now. Would it be more likely that Germany would, would be willing uh, to export defensive weapons to Ukraine if they were a member of NATO? Well, they're not going to become a member of NATO, um, and I think that is pretty much ruled out now. And actually Olaf Scholz ruled it out again today in a press conference with Vladimir Putin. It was actually quite interesting. It was almost humorous in the way he did it because um, in Putin's presence, Scholz said uh, that he didn't expect um, a NATO membership of Ukraine 
while the two of them were still in office. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's a bit of a dig. It's a bit of a dig because um, I mean, the time in office for a German Chancellor is, is typically f four years. That's a parliamentary term, and of course, they can be re-elected for the Russian president <laughs> it's a different story because it's basically now for life effectively as we know i mean putin has changed the constitution a few times now to make sure that he will be, will be there forever and frankly i think the lessons from from other authoritarian regimes is it is wise to stay in power because as soon as you're not in power your life is endangered mm -hmm. so it was a nice dick at vladimir putin to say okay while we are two while, while the two of us are in office ukraine will not be a member of nato Having said that, even though it was almost a joke, and even though it was probably the truth, I'm not sure whether it was wise for Olaf Scholz to actually state it that way. Because um, again, that limits Ukraine's sovereignty, limits NATO's sovereignty and the sovereignty of its members to decide on who's gonna join. But realistically speaking, of course, NATO would not be well advised to take on Ukraine as a full member because it would be a constant provocation for Russia. And in a way, there were politicians, of course, going back f 15 years ago when NATO actually extended its reach into Eastern Europe, warning that that shouldn't happen because Russia would always interpret it as a provocation, right. as a threat. Yeah. And I remember at the time it was Angela Merkel and it was also Nicolas Sarkozy, the then French president, warning against NATO extension. And it still happened and it had the effect, of course, of really leading to Putin become, to becoming more aggressive. Mm. So... It is a very fine balance that they have to find here. On the one hand, they have to support Ukraine, and they have to support Ukraine, for example, by sending its weapons, by sending Ukraine weapons that they can use for self-defense. That makes good sense. But there is this fine line where supporting Ukraine becomes aggression, at least from the Russian perspective, and that fine line, I think, would be crossed if they went for full NATO membership. One of the things that is really interesting about this conflict is, of course, the Ukrainian perspective versus those of Western leaders, such as Boris Johnson or Joe Biden. So the Ukrainians seemed a bit more relaxed than these Western leaders about the threat of invasion. What's your take on that? I found that extremely interesting. After Biden said uh, the invasion is going to happen on Wednesday, the Ukrainian president said, no, um, actually, no need to panic, and we don't expect that, and it's all fine. It was only the mayor of Kiev, um, Vitaly Klitschko, former boxer, who said, no, 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 this is going to happen, and the Russians are coming, and then afterwards they will take the Baltic states as well, which I think is totally unlikely, because um, of course, once Putin went into the Baltic states, that would trigger an Article 5 within NATO. Of course, yes. Uh, and so... I think it was a complete exaggeration on Klitschko's part, but the Ukrainian president actually tried to just downplay all of this, and actually he sounded a bit more cautious, and perhaps a bit more like my perspective, that he th still thinks actually this doesn't make any strategic sense for Russia to really come in. I mean, as far as Putin's concerned, he, I'm sure he's, he's, he's massed uh, troops on the border, but then he's gone off to Belarus and done some war games, and now he says he's retreating, he's, he's withdrawing rather. Well, he wanted to demonstrate some strength, and I think he's done that. Um, and he's also created a lot of mischief, of course, in the West, um, where Putin's calculation probably didn't work and probably achieved the opposite. He may have hoped to break Germany out of the West and use Germany's dependence on Russian gas to really split NATO. What he achieved was the opposite. The Germans, as we talked about before, have now come back to NATO and actually become become quite firm and 
talked about the German president's remarks. So I think that Putin hope um, didn't actually come through. Um, he also achieved um, the opposite in another respect. I mean, even the Scandinavian countries that have for a long time have been neutral are now for the first time thinking about joining NATO because they are afraid of a potential Russian invasion or aggression. So actually, in that sense, Putin's game has backfired on him already. And he would only make things worse, of course, for himself if he now went into Ukraine in any way. Then again, I have to hedge my bets here because Putin, even though I think he behaves rationally, he is not immune from making mistakes. He might actually also be finding himself in a position where he's been forced so much by the West into a corner that he thinks there is no way out for him without losing face, without doing something military. So in that sense, I didn't like actually what the Americans did over the weekend by saying, okay, it's all going to happen on Wednesday, because that actually made it so much harder for Putin to withdraw. Ups the stakes a bit, doesn't it? It ups the stakes. It made it easier for him to lose face. Mm. Um, And the only thing I I think actually that is good about this now is it has helped Putin in a way to... um, basically call the Americans bluff now and say, no, I'm withdrawing troops the day before you say I'm going to invade. So in that way, he's saving face, which I think he needs to because nobody wants to have a war. That's right. I guess one of the, on, on the flip side, uh, one of the interesting things that conflict has done is actually drawn Russia closer to China. A lot of the Russian troops on the Ukrainian border have been brought in from the Far East and Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin uh, have been saying some quite friendly things to one another. Yeah, I, I wouldn't go so far to say that this is a joint action by Russia and China. I don't think um, there's any conspiracy between the two to actually use the Ukraine conflict to maybe also promote China's interests in Taiwan. I wouldn't go so far to say that this was any kind of coordination between the two countries. But of course, the Chinese will be watching yeah. with interest. In another two weeks if we were to sit down and do another podcast where where do you think this conflict will have gone by then uh what do you think is likely to happen well i think the ukrainians would have taken a lesson from trevor mallard and play the macarena at the border (laughs) 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 no i mean seriously um i think actually the conflict will not have moved on much more i still don't think we will see a military aggression um we will still see um, frenzy diplomacy but I think this conflict will end in another way, but not a military conflict. Dr. Oliver Hardwich, thanks so much for joining us, and we look forward to uh, discussing further uh, developments in the Russia-Ukraine conflict in the future. Thank you. Thank you. To stay up to date with our latest research, opinions and events, sign up to our weekly insights newsletter at nzinitiative.org.nz.